All right, if we can start making our way back to our seats. I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'm going to read our scripture reading this evening. Um, I, it, it's a long passage, and so so we'll just kind of jump into it. Um, because let me kind of give you a heads up. What we're going to do is we're going to spend the next three weeks in basically in the prodigal, uh, the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. So we're going to spend three weeks on on the parable of the prodigal son. We're going to break it up and kind of um, in, in a general kind of sense on each character. Okay. Um, the, 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 the son that walks away, the son that stayed, uh, and, and the father, but, but they're going to kind of mix and, and change a little bit. And so you'll, you'll kind of see the direction we're going as we progress through it. But we start at, at the beginning, um, of chapter 15. And there are two other parables that are, are set up there. Um, that lead us into the parable of the prodigal son. So in verse 15, chap- chapter, verse, chapter 15, verse 1, it says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine came across that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs were eating, and yet no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But it is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, as we we come, um, God, to open your word, we come to this passage that is is for many of us um, so familiar, God. And we ask that you would um, move past the familiarity and, and teach us something um, in your word today, God, that we had not recognized, that we would get a new sense of, of, of who you are, who we are, God, that we would be convicted of our sin, um, that we would see um, your goodness and graciousness, God, that you would work through your word um, to form us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we ask that every week as we come to your word. We know that there is, is no way for us to rightly uh, divide your word, that there is no way for us to rightly understand it outside of the power of the Holy Spirit applying it to our lives. And so we um, we ask you, we call on you to do that very thing in our lives, that the Spirit would shine a light on our hearts, um, that the Spirit would shine a light on this text, God, that, that um, he would enlighten our understanding and that we would rightly understand these things, God, that we would see what we need to see in them. Um, that we would see ourselves in this passage, that we would see you in this passage. God, that you would use it to make us more like your son. Again, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness and your gracious. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we have this objective source um, that we can go to uh, and hear from you. Uh, We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, So Jesus' parables. Um, we talk about Jesus parables. Obviously, Jesus parables are a big um, um, topic of, of comment when it comes to the scriptures because there is um, people investigating the Bible and investigating even sort of the Bible from a literature standpoint even um, recognize the parables are sort of this neat, um, unique kind of instrument that, that, that Jesus used um, uh, to, to teach and to, to minister to people. And so we talk a lot about different things about parables, and, and we've said different things as we've come through um, the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel is uniquely focused on parables. There are a number of parables, including this one, that are only found in the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke has a particular interest in, in the parables of Jesus. And when we come to a parable, we, we've talked about this before, but in general, when we come to a parable, a parable usually has one point, Okay. There is one principle, one moral that is trying to, um, that the passage is trying to get, get across. Okay. Um, that's typically the case. And so the, the danger is, is that sometimes we come to parables and we want to allegorize every single piece, right? 
We want to add meaning and add significance to every single little piece in the passage. And sometimes that's illegitimate. Um, that sometimes in, in, in the, the process of the story, the big point is the main thing. And you're not meant to try to, to see something in every single little piece. Okay. Now, I say that's normally the case because it's not always the case. There are certain parables that we know are not like that. So, for example, one is the parable of the four soils, where the whole thing is a, is a, is a multi-leveled kind of allegory. And we read it, and then Jesus explains it and says, this is what each piece means, and it represents. And so we see that certain times there are parables that are, are, are meant to be ter- interpreted a little more broadly and a little more allegorically, okay? I think this is one of them. I think the prodigal son is one of those. But that is not to say that this passage doesn't also have a main meaning, okay? When Jesus elaborates, and we can get a picture of this just in the text, he gives us a couple of little parables in which a principle is is put forth, and then he gives us this long, elaborate parable, okay? We're going to see how those are connected, but it points us to this idea that there is one primary Thing that we're supposed to be getting out of this passage, and yet we learn a whole lot about other things um, by investigating the passage closer. And so, um, the, the way we're going to frame maybe today's um, message, because again, like I told you, we're going to do three messages on on chapter fifteen and and the, the parable of the prodigal son. Today is I'm going to start with this question: Is who is the main character in the parable of the prodigal son? Who is the main character in the parable of the prodigal son? So get your answer in your head. Yeah, get your answer in your head, okay? Um, let's start here. Probably a lot of people would say, well, isn't it the prodigal? It's got to be the prodigal son. After all, this story's named after him, right? Now, we added those stories in later. I mean, the title's in later. They're not uh, They're not in the biblical text, but but it's named. The whole parable is called the prodigal son. Um, the prodigal son in this passage, um, or maybe the better way for us to say it is the son who left takes up most of the word count. All right. He seems to have most of the content. The first two thirds of the parable involve the son that walked away. Most of the conflict of the parable directly involves the decisions, um, that the, the, the son who walked away, um, has made. And so it would probably be normal for somebody to say, well, of course, that the main character in the parable of the prodigal son is the younger brother, the parable of the, the prodigal son himself. But I'm going to suggest to you that he's not the main character of that of this passage, okay? Now, you might be saying right now, oh, I get it, Ash. I see what you just did. You Jesus juked me, right? Like, um, that's what you, you, because we all know, if you've been in Sunday school for any amount of time, you know that the right answer is always God. Or, or Jesus, right? That that's what you're supposed to say. Um, and in this parable, the father is the, is the, the representative of, of the person, the character that represents God, right? Or, or Jesus. So anytime God's involved in a story, he's the center of it, right? Um, that, that must be the case. Um, not only is he, God, and, and therefore it seems like it would make sense for him to be the center, but but he is the character that kind of connects the whole story together, right? If you notice, the beginning of the parable has to do with the younger brother, and the end has to do with the older brother, but it is the father who connects both of those those pieces. 
Um, the younger brother and the older brother are never actually on stage together. Um, it is the father who connects them. And moreover, it's the father whose decisions and actions bring resolution to the problems that are in the passage. And so certainly it, it must be the father who is the main character in the parable of the prodigal son. Now, here's the thing. Maybe you're saying, Ash, it sounds crazy not to think that God is the main character, but I don't think God is the main character in the, the parable of the prodigal son either. Now, again, before you get mad at me and you think, okay, well, Ash, that means we're not talking about the younger brother or the father in this thing. We're going to focus in on the older brother. Just remember, we've got two more sermons to go, right? So we're going to loop back around and kind of talk about each, essentially each of these sermons is going to kind of focus in general on on one of the characters in um, uh, the 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 uh, parable of the prodigal son. Because I think there's a ton of incredible content in this parable, okay? Clarifying, um, beautiful, category-defining kind of truth that we find in here. I can tell you from a personal standpoint that between this parable and the parable of the four soils, man, a whole lot of my way of understanding God and ministry and life and salvation uh, and and the nature of man and the nature of God and all these things, a whole lot of my understanding is falls into categories that I see in in these two parables, okay? And so so we're going to loop back around to to the father and the younger brother. But all that to say is I think the main character in this passage is the older brother. And this is the reason why. One of the first things that maybe helps us to deduce that he is the main character, is the context in which we see this parable, okay? So notice a couple of things. First off, notice how it is set up. The whole the whole chapter. Notice how it's set up. Verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay? So here's the deal. The first thing that we notice is the occasion for the parables being taught is what happens in verse 1 and 2. Jesus is teaching, and the tax collectors and sinners are, are being drawn to him. They're coming to him freely to hear Jesus' teaching. They're coming to hear, and again, that's an important piece of Luke's gospel. Gospel uh, Luke often talks about this idea of people hearing Jesus. And what we see is that the poor and and uh, the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they tend to hear Jesus when he teaches. And it tends to be the Pharisees who do not hear Jesus. But we notice that they're being drawn to Jesus. That's an aspect of this passage and Jesus' ministry that we're going to come back to over and over again. Jesus' character, something about him, sinners are drawn to Jesus. They want to hear from him. They are not um, scared of him in a way, threatened. I don't know if any of those are great words um, for the relationship that he has to them. But, but they want to come hear what Jesus has to say. Maybe not all tax collectors and prostitutes. I'm sure there were notorious sinners in these communities that said, no, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. But we know that they often come to Jesus. And maybe here's the more important point is they don't go to the Pharisees. Okay? Um, sinners seem to want to come to Jesus, but they sure don't want to go to the Pharisees. So we speak again about this idea, and I think this is one of the, the beginning principles that we see in this passage. We speak about 
sharing the faith and truth and love to the world, right? We're supposed to share Christ with the world in truth and in love. We're commanded to do that in Ephesians chapter 4. But we don't often talk about how difficult that is, right? How difficult it is to speak truth in love to people. I feel like nobody does it perfectly. Um, I feel like quite a few people do it poorly, okay? Most of us end up drifting to one side or the other, right? We're really good at speaking in love or we're really good at speaking in truth. Um, but we have a hard time doing what Jesus seems to do naturally, and that is to speak both of these things at the same time, to welcome sinners and yet to speak truth into their lives and hold them to account. Not at the expense of truth, not at the expense of gentleness, but but laying both of those out there. It's something to pray about. It's something that we should all pray about, to consider in our own lives and our own witness and in, in the way we evangelize. Jesus does it perfectly. The Pharisees obviously lean to one side of that equation. So anyway, in, in the first passage, we see this paradigm kind of arise, that verses 1 and 2, and it's kind of like a layout for the whole for the whole parable. The sinners, the younger brothers, are the ones who are drawn to Jesus. Jesus, or the Father, um, is the one who receives sinners and eats with them. And the Pharisees, the older brothers, are the ones who grumble about Jesus' response to the sinners. Again, that's basically an outline for the whole parable. And we see it in those first two verses. That's our first clue about who this passage is talking about. It's It's the... It's the Pharisees whose reaction elicits the teaching. Does that make sense? Right? It's how they are behaving that makes Jesus teach these two parables. So it is not the fact that the sinners are drawing near that Jesus says these parables. It's not the fact that Jesus is graciously accepting these people that that elicits the parable. No, it's the Pharisees grumbling. Pharisees are the older brothers. The older brothers is is the center of the passage. Okay? Here's the second context that we see that gives us a clue that the older brother is the main character. We have this rather long parable of the prodigal son. Probably, I, I didn't look to count words and stuff, but it's probably one of the largest parables certainly in, in the scriptures. And yet it is preceded by two much shorter, much simpler parables. The parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Okay? Now here's what we do. When we notice this section, we do this. We look at the pattern that arises in all three of these these parables. And this is what we see. The lost sheep parable, something is lost, something is found, everybody celebrates. Then we have the lost coin. Something is lost, something is found, everybody celebrates. Then we get to the parable of the prodigal son. Something is lost, something is found. Everybody celebrates, and somebody gets mad about that. Okay? The fact that something new happens in the third parable is, again, pointing us to the fact that that's the issue. That's what's going wrong in this story. It draws our attention to the response of the Pharisees, to the older brother as the main character. And it's right there. His response is right there in verse 28. What does he do? And what are the Pharisees doing? But he was angry and refused to go in. That's the problem. Sinners are coming to Jesus, and the Pharisees are repulsed by that. They are repulsed by the actions 
of, of the father towards the brother. They are resentful of his response, the way that he receives sinners. So in verse 28, again, the second half, we, we read it a minute ago, his father came out and entreated him. And he answered to his father, look, I have served you uh, many years, and I've never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me anything, basically, he's saying. I never had an opportunity to celebrate with my friends because of these things. But when this son of yours, who has disgraced your name, who has devoured your property and spent it on drunkenness and prostitutes and all these kind of things, wild living, man, you, you throw a party for him. And here's the reality, is what that older brother is saying, this just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right that you would do this. And I don't feel like you even care about me or anything I've done or my obedience in this whole process. All you seem to care about is this other brother who has come back who doesn't deserve any of that care. Now, here's the deal. First off, i got to say, the older brother's understanding of the situation is not exactly true. It feels like it is to him, but we're going to talk about that um, in the next kind of in the next uh, the next sermon. Um, the older brother has actually been living in a kind of sin in relation to his father as well. I think maybe not as blatant, maybe not as destructive as the younger brothers, but it's still there. So we're going to discuss that um, in in either next week or the week after. But it is true that he has been obedient in a way that the younger brother has not been. And he says, you've never celebrated for me, but you celebrate for somebody who has done everything wrong. right? I've done everything right, and you have done everything wrong. That's the brother's anger. That's the brother's resentment. Okay, you ready? Confession time. Okay, it's a safe place, right? Like I can say whatever from up here. So here's the deal. Man, I look at my own heart, and I've got a lot of older brother heart. Not fully. It's not the only thing that defines my belief, and I'm going to talk about that in a second too. But some of it, I've got an older brother heart, particularly in my attitude to those who have walked away. So we've made several references in this in this. The last couple of weeks to this podcast, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, right? A lot of people have been listening to it. It's brought to the surface in sort of the Christian consciousness, this idea of the deconversion story. Uh, that's something people have been talking about for a few years, but probably a lot more people are also familiar with it because of that podcast. So any number of celebrities that we can call out, high-profile Christians, pastors, people who over the last few years have walked away from the faith, for various reasons, right? And they've been very vocal about it. And, and this whole, given a testimony of their whole deconversion in the faith, right? Probably all of us in here have friends, have family members who have deconverted in, in recent years. Sometimes because they are hurt by the church. Some because, sometimes because they, as far as we can tell, have just loved the world more than they did Christ in his church. And so here's the deal. Again, confession. My reflex, gut response to that happening is an older brother response. My first thoughts when I see that happening is not sorrow, not love, but it is basically good riddance. Okay? 
that's not right. I'm just telling you what I, what, what my gut response is. My first thought is, you know what? Grow up. Get over it. Get over yourself. Christianity in America is in the fight of its life. And you're bailing on us in the middle of it. You are turning tail and running in the midst of a fight. We needed you people. And you bailed on us in the middle. And guess what? Again, my initial response is not, brother, I'm so sorry. My initial response is, you have betrayed us. And you know what? See ya. Good riddance. Who would turn their back? on their friends and their family and their savior in the midst of a battle like that. Who would do that? You say, Ash, well, that's a bit harsh. And you know what? You're right. It is a bit harsh. That's the older brother in me talking. But here's the thing. Not Jesus. That doesn't seem to be Jesus' response in these situations. We see the character of God and God the Father and, and Jesus in the two preceding parables as much as we do in the parable of the prodigal son. Because here's what we see in those two passages. In the first parable, the one of the lost sheep, we see God's passion to seek and to save the lost. Particularly, the picture is given to us of the one who was part of us and then has wandered away somewhere. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? You want to know who doesn't do that? Me. I don't do that. Because again, that older brother comes in and I sort of go, I don't have time to go seek out the lost rebel when I got 99 other sheep who are sitting here, right? Who are vulnerable, who have, who have got their own issues that I'm trying to manage and care for and tend to and feed and shepherd. I don't have time and I don't really even have the inclination, honestly. And to me, it seems kind of dumb. It seems unwise to do that. Look what he says. He said that some people have said in these passages, they go, man, um, it's got to be the case that there are other shepherds, right? This guy can leave his flock and go find the 90, I mean, go find the one because somebody is watching over the 99, except there's nothing in the text that would indicate that. In fact, the opposite, because we have that wording of he leaves the 99 in the open country. Right? He doesn't leave them in a corral. He doesn't take them back to the home. He leaves them in the open country. He leaves them out where they're vulnerable. But he does that so that he can go after the one that is lost. The defining characteristic of Jesus, the, the desire of his heart in this passage, I think is the defining characteristic of the gospel. It's the reason the gospel exists. This passage is the reason why the gospel happened. It's the reason why Jesus came to earth. It's the reason why Jesus suffered and died. The reason he is long-suffering even when his people rebel. It's because Jesus goes after the lost. 
Jesus seeks out the one who is lost. Now, again, in the complexity of human relationships, we know that there's there's more to the story than that, right? Um, we even see it in the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is a moral agent. He has to come to a point of repentance. It's it, In that story, he is the one who comes home, right? We see a picture of the father waiting, anticipating the coming of the son, eager for the coming of the son. But it's the son who has to repent and return to the father. So there's, 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 there's more complexity there. But we see in this passage, Jesus, his heart is not a heart of anger and resentfulness to those who have walked away, but it's a heart of diligence. It's a heart of hopefulness and it rejoices and celebrates at the loss being found. That's what we see in that second parable, the parable of the lost coin. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me. I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I relate to this one a lot better. This parable seems a little more natural to me because here's the deal, man. When I lose money or keys or a zip drive or something like that, right, man, I am nuts until I find it, okay? I drop everything. I call meetings and I say I can't be there until I find this thing that I have lost. I'm obsessed with it. I can tell you several stories. There's been a couple of times where I have, like, misplaced money. There was a time when we did college ministry here at Vienna before the church started where I took a handful of money, about $300, and had it at the bottom of a of a, a stack of bulletins that we didn't need anymore, and I forgot that I would put it at the bottom of that stack, and I threw it in the garbage. And then I looked for it the whole next day trying to figure out what I had done with this money. And then all of a sudden it hit me. But I threw it in the garbage. And so I called up Mark Ashley, who used to work here. And I was like, dude, what day does your dumpster get picked up? And he was like, tomorrow. And I was like, you want to help me dive through the dumpster? Because there's $300 in one of those trash bags. and We got to get it. We came up here and he was gracious and went through the trash with me. And we dug through and I said, you don't have to open all the bags. Just find the ones that you can see bulletins in. If there's bulletins, check it. If no bulletins, you don't have to worry. It's not in there. And we found that $300, man. But for like two days, a day and a half, I didn't do anything. I spent all my time thinking, where could it be? What could have happened? Where did I go? Could have fallen with the whole deal, okay? I get this passage a little bit more, and I get the celebration that happened at the end. Because, man, when you find that thing that you have lost, it is the best feeling in the world. And here's the deal. I think it works, this thing. As much as I am the older brother in that first parable, I don't feel like I'm the older brother in this parable. Because here's the thing. I'm totally celebratory when the lost return, right? Even that guy um, or whoever who had walked away and I was angry at before, if that person showed up and said, I was wrong, I've turned back to Christ, and I want to follow him and, and be in relationship with him, I would not be like, well, cool, you know, you can go do that somewhere else. That would not be my attitude. I would be like, this is awesome. I'm so excited for you. I'm I'm, I'm gracious and thankful to God and celebratory and I'm so glad that you've come back man some of that is y'all's story in here right you've had those times where you walked away from the faith and you came back 
and I'm excited for it. So, so again, like we see this interesting thing where probably all of us are a little bit of different brothers. Okay. I hope the case is, is that the gospel has changed my heart enough that I can celebrate when the lost are found. But you know what? Obviously there's still work to do in my heart. And there was work to do in the Pharisees heart because not only did they, were they resentful of the rebellion, but they were resentful when the lost were found. We are called to celebrate. Jesus celebrates when the lost are found, when they return to the faith. And again, it's one of the great joys of of ministry. It's one of the great joys of Christianity, I think, right? When you see other people come into the faith, it's an encouragement. We talked about it last week about that idea of soft selling, right? That too often we soft sell the gospel to people. Because we really want them to believe, but, but here's the deal. I told us that we shouldn't soft sell last week, but I want you to know that I think it comes from a good place in most of our, our hearts, right? The reason why we soft sell it is because we are desperate that people would believe these things. We want them to believe and hear the gospel and turn and return to Christ. And so sometimes we make the foolish decision to soft sell it to try to coerce a decision and get them to come in when the, the real good would be to sell them straight, right? Tell them the cost. So that we don't have something where in a few short months when the, when the, the plant sprouts up and the sun comes out that it withers and dies and we lose them again. But it comes out of a pure motive, right? We want people to come to Christ. There is a kind of sin that is annoyed when the lost come to Christ. There is a kind of sin that resents the attention and the praise and the celebration that people who have come to Christ get. We know for a fact that there, and you've you've talked to people uh, in the faith problem before, who talk about the idea that when they came back to the church, they felt judged, right? They felt like people were looking at them saying, eh, you know, your sin is a little much for me, and I I don't want to have to deal with that. Um, or, or maybe like we said, man, I've been thinking bad about you for too long. It's hard for me to shift gears and get back into the right mindset. They wouldn't say it like that, but that's probably what's going on in, in some of their heads. It seems to be what's going on in the Pharisees' heads, right? They are repulsed by the sin of the, of the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and they're annoyed at Jesus for welcoming them, for sitting down with them and eating with them. The crazy thing about the Pharisees and the older brother is they're resentful and angry on both ends of this thing. They're resentful when the brother went away, and they're resentful when he comes back. They are angry at the brother when he walked away, and they're angry at the brother when he comes back, and they celebrate him. This passage is about the older brother. And it's about our hearts in those things. Again, you may look at this passage and say, Ash, I'm just honestly saying, I don't have an ounce of older brother in me. And if you don't, good for you. All right? Great. I'm glad for that. Okay? But i got a feeling like probably many of us do. We've got more than a little bit of older brother in us. So what I want to do is I just want to go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Because... I think this is one of the big hindrances to the church reaching the lost. 
It's one of the big hindrances to us reaching out to the world and receiving back the people who have wandered from the faith is we've got a lot of older brother in us. We've got a lot of resentment. We've got a lot of anger to those people. Maybe we're just weirded out by the whole process and we don't know how to deal with it. But we've got a lot of that in us. And we need to ask God to give us the heart of Christ in terms of these things. That we would have a passion and a desire to seek out the lost. And again, I'm telling you, that's not my default position. You can probably look at many aspects of my ministry and say, yeah, I can see it, Ash. That's not your default position. Okay? It's not the thing that comes easiest to you. But it's what Christ is like, right? It's what Christ does. It's the attitude that he has. And so it should be the same kind of attitude that we have. So let's just go for a minute. Let's just go to Lord in prayer. You do, you do your own business with God, right? You talk to him about wherever it is that your heart lies in these things. Um, and then I'm going to come back in just a minute and, and pray for, um, pray for us and close us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we confess um, that the anger, uh, the resentment that we bear towards a lost and dying world, God, is a function of, God, probably a self-righteousness. Probably the fact that we have not truly um, imbibed and applied the gospel to our own hearts. Because, God, it is it is us not recognizing the fact that uh, we are those who have walked away. God, we are the prodigal son. While we may be acting like the old brother, God, we are the ones who you have sought out and saved. We are the ones who walked away and lived in unrighteousness and have turned to you in repentance. We are the ones who have done all these things. And maybe it's just been so long since we lived blatantly and openly in that life that we have forgotten that that's who we were. And that's who our identity was that we are the younger brother. God, we, we want to have hearts that are shaped by the character and word of Jesus Christ. We want to be people who believe the gospel so deeply that we would apply it to every relationship that we have, every person that we meet, um, every person that has angered us or betrayed us. God, every person that we have hurt intentionally or unintentionally. God, that we would recognize God, the full-orbed vision of, of what the gospel um, says and does and how it applies. God, that we would see the grace and mercy in it, that we would see that repentance is necessary, that we would see a turning to Christ uh, and, and a trusting in his sacrifice is, is what we see, that we would see a continued battle against the old man, God, the necessary reality of sanctification, God, all of these different pieces that come together in the gospel, that we would um, believe them all and apply them all and live them out. And God, most importantly, that we would take uh, 
um, that attitude and that truth to the lost and dying around us. Father, I'm not good at that. But I ask that you help me um, to grow in Christ's likeness in this area. We ask this in Jesus' name. And Father, we ask additionally, particularly as, as many of us, um, God, have, have known and uh, loved and been in relationship with the Livingston family in, in Blount County. Um, God, we pray for uh, their sweet family this evening. We pray for the great and, and difficult loss of, of their son and brother and husband and father, Josh Livingston. And we pray for Leslie and, and the boys. We pray for uh, Bill and Janice. We pray for uh, Daniel and Caleb. God, we pray for their family. This huge hole that is going to be in their hearts and uh, their lives. Um, we ask that you would bring peace, that you would help them to grieve. Um, God, that they would be encouraged by the fact that we, while we grieve, we do not grieve like the world grieves because we know your son, Jesus Christ, we know that Josh knew your son, Jesus Christ. God, we are confident in that. So as we miss him now, God, we look with anticipation to, to a day when we will be reunited where we can talk to him again and uh, God, that we can share in his fellowship. God bless that family. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Please stand and sing the closing song.
see you tonight. Glad you're here. Um, hope you'll be able to join us in the next two weeks as we continue in in the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, man, there's there's just there's so much more there. Like we're just going to keep on kind of digging in and, and hitting on on um, the role of the father in the passage, the role of the younger son, uh, and what those mean for who we are and, and a depiction of who God himself is. So hope you can be here for that. Um, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.